This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. When the jury panel comes into the courtroom and the bailiff says, all rise, I know we're here. And it doesn't matter who they are, nobody should be above the law. A lot of us talk about that, but you actually done it. That's how you also maintain quality control over your practice. Yeah. That's a question I get asked a lot, and here's the answer. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on the show, we have Michael Mogul. Michael is the founder and CEO of Crisp Video Group, the nation's fastest-growing legal video marketing company. He came out with a new book called The Game-Changing Attorney, How to Land the Best Cases, Stand Out from Your Competition, and Become the Obvious Choice in Your Market. I enjoyed reading his book and thought he would be a great guest for the show. Today we'll be talking about something he calls attention economics and what you can do to stand out in your marketing when firms with huge marketing budgets are dominating your area. We also discuss how you can use videos to target just as many people online as you would if you purchased a big billboard. And we talk about how legal marketing has changed and what we can expect to happen in the future. I hope you enjoy the show. So, Michael, how are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so our, our company, uh, we actually work with attorneys all across the country. We produce their videos, mostly mostly for the web. Uh, and ultimately, while we do create video content, with the business that we're really in is helping our clients differentiate themselves and stand out from the competition. We, just, we happen to do it through video, but we do everything from actually filming the content and editing it all throughout the actual content strategy to placing the videos, running the ads, driving the leads, I mean, everything from start to finish. So I guess for an ex- you know, as an example, um, typically the type of firm we work with is usually a, a solo or a small firm, uh, whether it's really across all practice areas, they'd come to us and say, look, this, we really want to grow in this specific area. We'll really narrow that down. Um, we find that niche focus is something that works really well. So a firm is a personal injury firm specializing in you know, traumatic brain injury or let's say trucking, that we can really narrow that focus create the content around it, run the campaigns. And interestingly enough, we've carved out, carved out this niche of our own, and that this is, this is now all we do. We just work with, uh, with attorneys and law firms, and, um, you know, and we've been able to really grow each year as a result. But um, I found that you know, having a clear focus and a niche focus has just been uh, something that's helped to differentiate us too. And how did you get into this? I mean, you, 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 know, you want to help lawyers tell their stories. What's your story? Wow. Okay. So, um, as I say, depending on how much time we have, but I'll, I'll give the, the quickest version of this. So, take your time. I, I, I mean, it's 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 always interesting because, you know, your journey on how people how you got into this is often instructive to lawyers on how they get to where they want to be in life. That's right. So I will I'll dial back to the beginning. So basically, uh, I my family and I uh, we immigrated here from. Uh, from Europe, and I came here like basically two parents, two grandparents, my brother and I, and they had five hundred dollars. Um, they, they we didn't speak English, and um, I was four years old when we came here, so um, didn't grow up with much money. But I had uh, a, a great family, and and ultimately, it's it. I was always very entrepreneurial. Uh, I think one of my first businesses at age I think thirteen uh, was a, a web company. Uh, I learned like HTML and um, all you know all sorts of web development. And, 
I guess this is a little bit odd when you're a young kid and you're 13 years old, but my mom would actually let, let my clients in the front door of our home and we work on their website. Wow. Uh, but, you know, again, being the son of like Jewish immigrant parents, you know, the, the career paths were largely doctor or, or lawyer, right? So it, it certainly was an entrepreneur, right? So that's, that was very much the unknown. But I, I went to school, had a biology degree, took the MCAT, got into med school. And at the time, I mean, I was, there was obviously a lot of pressure to go, but I wasn't sure, you know, being very entrepreneurial, that that was the path that I wanted to go down. So I decided to, to take a year before um, before making that decision. And this was right in 2008, right when um, the market had collapsed. So, you know, here you have me, this honors like graduate uh, who'd gotten into med school and I'm looking for, for work and ultimately got a job at a, uh, at a local dive bar uh, at Taco Mac. So as you can imagine, my, you know, my immigrant parents were very proud at this <laughs> point, right? Uh, so, but at the same time, I, I knew that, you know, Perhaps that school wasn't for me, but um, I, I started doing a lot of learning and reading. And then, you know, um, I went from uh, medical school, like, or, or rather not going to medical school and working at this dive bar and washing dishes there to washing lab equipment at the CDC. Um, and then while I was there, uh, I was able to really invest a lot of time in just learning all sorts of different things in, in, in many different areas. And I had bought a, a camera. I figured this would be just a good, like skilled in learning, almost like a lifetime hobby. And for me, my hobbies turn into more than hobbies. So uh, interestingly enough, um, over the course of several years, um, I ended up starting a company called Crisp. And this really came out of uh, one, the creative aspect of it. But what I saw was you know, where things were headed. Uh, back in 2012, everyone was telling me, you know, don't start a video company. There's really no future in video. There's no future in, you know, everything's going to be continued to be TV. And even if it goes digital, you're not going to be able to compete with the agencies. Um, but at the time, uh, you know, basically starting this new venture, I felt that, you know, attention was shifting. Um, YouTube was just, you know, very much on the rise. And I figured really there's a lot to this video stuff. Um, today, it's not as hard of a sell, right? I mean, if, uh, for people yeah. that are online, the, you know, video online is, you know, you don't have to explain why video. But at the time, in 2012, you really did. And I'd have to tell them all sorts of things that to say, you know, if a picture is worth a thousand words, you know, if, if video is uh, certainly much more engaging. Uh, but video became a differentiation tool. But the interesting thing is on the way to really getting crisp off the ground is really the story of failure and, and tremendous story of failure. I, I go into this in depth in the book, but um, I, I think that a lot of people would uh, – I think everybody's got their limit in terms of how much failure they'll accept, whether it's you know seven failures or 12 failures. For me, um, it took us 21, um, and we succeeded on the 22nd um, to where wow. crisp really got off the ground. Um, I don't know if we have time for that story. I'm, I'm happy to share it if, you, if you'd like, but this is, it, 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 it's interesting to think about what, like none of this would have happened if I had perhaps given up on, you know, number 16 or number 17 um, or even, you know, number 21. So um, it's interesting. It's have you ever read the, the, the book? I think it's business brilliant or business brilliance, but what they did is they looked at people that came from, uh, all different backgrounds, and they differentiated them between people that were making under thirty thousand a year, a hundred thousand to a million, million dollar a year makers, and ten million plus a year makers. And they wanted to look for what you know are there a common set of characteristics of the million and ten million dollar a year people. And it wasn't, 
anything to do with family background or upbringing. It wasn't the quality of the education. It wasn't the grades. Uh, but one of the prime things was dealing with failure, that people who had, you know, not a bad life, but an ordinary life, they would try something once, they would fail, and they would quit and move on to something else. Whereas the people that had become incredibly successful would do something multiple times, fail at it multiple times, but then keep going back, but also learning from each failure and improving each time until they got it right, as opposed to just banging your head on the wall and, and not learning a lesson from it. And so it's something that I've really taken to heart that, you know, we've tried many, many different things, you know, in my law firm and my law practice over the last 22 years. Some of them have worked spectacularly well. Some of them have not worked at all, but we've learned from all of them not giving up. And I think that's a big thing uh, in any business is you have to you have to experience failure. It's part of life and you have to overcome it. Absolutely. And I, I'm in complete agreement. I think that there's, you know, there's, there's learning from failure and failing forward. So like with each failure, you're obviously learning and growing and improving. Um, and there's really no way around it. I mean, it's, it's interesting. A, a lot of times now I'll hear things like, well, you, you should have done this or you should have done that. And uh, at the time, right. I mean, if I wish, you know, when, when I started Crisp, ironically, with $500, so it bootstrapped the whole company. We never had any loans or investors or partners or anything like that. You know, when when I, when I reached out for, for the loans, you know, unfortunately, you find that um, nobody wants to loan uh, any money to a company with no clients and no business and no money. Um, yeah. So help never came, and we really had to figure it out on our own, which I'm very grateful that, that we did. But uh, it's it's interesting because it's there's a great book by Ben Horowitz, it's, uh, and I think it, it should be essential reading for every entrepreneur. It's called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, and the reality is that you know you never have that um, that crystal ball that'll tell you, okay, six years from now this is going to be a hit and this is going to work great and everything will be fine. In that one moment, you're not thinking this is going to be a great story someday, but you're thinking how do we keep the doors open and how do we keep this going? And that's a very difficult thing. I think the only reason that I was able to do it at the time was just one, um, I think early on, it was probably that chip on my shoulder when um, when you're going down a very different path and it's not something you know, you're hearing from a lot of people that it won't be successful and that uh, that you shouldn't do it. I mean, I remember uh, you know the fact that my 21 failures were really 21 pitches, but not 21 emails or anything like that. It was literally meetings um, that I put full proposals and I outlined everything. And then at the end of each one, they told me that they really didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I think it was like on number 13 or 14, uh, I I called my dad and I was telling him about this. And I was like, hey, I'm trying to launch this company. And um, these are the failures. And I think I'm like, like you know, number 14. Um, and his response was like, yeah, I think you should shut it down and go, you know, go back to school. Um, you know, I persisted. And, and what's interesting is just that what that took and how rock bottom it was at number 21. So like, for example, um, and you really can't make this stuff up. Um, what it took was I was at a Texas roadhouse. The hostess who seated me, her mom was the administrative assistant to, um, the CEO of an agricultural company in Leesburg, Georgia. Um, so if anyone's listening, it actually knows what Leesburg, Georgia is. Um, it is roughly four hours outside of Atlanta. It is a place where you generally don't have uh, LTE <laughs> or 4G. Right. And, um, and they said, well, I think they're looking to do a, an agricultural video. Um, and they've worked with this, uh, a gentleman who specializes in agricultural videos for the last eight years, and, which I did not even know that that was a niche in and of itself. But um, they're probably going to go with him because they've worked with him for the last eight years. But if you'd like, they'll meet with you. 
Um, and at this point, I was already 21, uh, 21 consistent failures down. It had been several months. Um, I was out of money. I didn't even have enough for the next month's rent um, for my apartment. And I said, yes, of course. I mean, of course, I'll take, you know, I'll, I'd love to do the meeting. And to get to Leesburg, Georgia at the time of our meeting, I think I had to leave my home at three in the morning. Uh, oh, wow. Way over. I'm dressed in a full, full suit, everything. Um, and I get pulled over. Um, it, this was like towards the end of the month. So there was like, there were multiple speed traps. And the, I remember the police officer, he had thought that I was out from the night before because, you know, who's driving in a suit at three in the morning. Um, right. But fortunately, um, I was able to get to the meeting on time, although, you know, going into that meeting, I was already fa- facing a hefty uh, speeding ticket, which when you, when you don't have any money and you get another speeding ticket on top of that, it's not a wonderful feeling. Um, they, they take the meeting with me. It probably was, they gave me maybe seven or 10 minutes and they said, all right, great. We'll call you. So I'm feeling, okay, I'm, this probably didn't go very well. And on my way back, I got another speeding ticket, um, which I promise I'm not a horrible driver. I just, this was <laughs> towards the end of the month speed trap. And I'm facing like a thousand dollars of speeding tickets. I had gone through 21 failures. I didn't have any money. This is like a rock bottom moment. So everyone has like wow. their, you know, I, I think they, everyone has their line as to, okay, I think I'm going to try something else, right? Um, and, and I was definitely feeling that uh, at that moment because you know, some people stop at maybe number nine or number 15 or number 18. And I, you know, at this point, gone 21 failings and I'm driving back, uh, you know, it, all the while, all throughout this time, everyone's telling you it won't be successful and you shouldn't do it. But uh, a few days later, I get a call from them and uh, we ended up getting the work. And that was the very first client that we had as Crisp. And we traveled across the Southeast and um, we worked with these farmers and it was a great, great experience. Um, from there, we grew to working with the larger brands like Coca-Cola and Red Bull and um, and Verizon and so on. And then we started to niche down into individual industries um, like dental and medical and financial. And randomly, several years in, um, we had an attorney reach out to us and she really didn't have any online presence or any website, but she was competing against law firms who did and big advertisers who were able to invest a lot of money in marketing. And ultimately, she didn't have the, the resources to be competitive in that way. But she'd asked us to produce a video and we created this almost like movie trailer like style video and like once the video launched i think like 30 days had gone by and the, her firm had exploded i mean her firm's you know the oh, phones wow. rang the hook it was just it completely changed the game for her and at the time we didn't really know what was going on in the legal industry in terms of like legal video but i thought okay this is this is interesting that this type of video made this this sort of impact so uh, i started looking more closely at what content was being produced and i found that you know, arguably for the last you know ten to fifteen years, not a whole lot had changed in legal advertising and and with the way in which legal video was being done. So um, we found that you know there were many many firms, many outstanding um, law firms that unfortunately were great attorneys but weren't great marketers. And yet, for on the consumer side, many consumers were choosing which attorney they would hire, oftentimes based on which billboard they saw or how many TV commercials that they saw. So we found that the best cases really you know, we're going to the best marketers, but not always the best attorneys. So we made a pivot. We focused on that niche. And now it's, you know, 100% of the of the types of clients that we work with, they're all, all attorneys. And that's really our value proposition is that we wanted to level the playing field um, for the attorneys who, are, you know, came out of law school, learned how to be great, great attorneys. But unfortunately, unless they were able to be visible and unless they were able to um, get clients in the door, 
they weren't really able to make an impact in their communities. Well, how do, you know, those of us that have, I guess I have more of a mid-sized practice at this point, but I had a small practice most of my career, and a lot of our listeners have sole practitioners or, you know, two or three lawyer firms. How do you compete with, you know, one of our guests, Alex Begum, has a seven-figure marketing budget every year. Uh, there's another lawyer in our in my San Antonio market that spends over $4 million a year uh, every year on marketing. So how does the, the little guy get heard and seen in the clutter of people spending literally millions of dollars uh, to run their ads? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that's a, literally probably the, the entire theme of the entire book because the reality is if you've got somebody who's buying up all the billboards and all the radio spots and they're just saturating the market – you can't compete with them on spend, right? So you you, you obviously can't um, compete just that way. And, and even if you did, um, the cost of acquiring any individual client may be so high that if you know that case may not be worth it. So you can't compete on budget. So there has to be a way to um, to compete in a strategic way and level the playing field. And what we're finding is the best way to compete is to simply differentiate yourself. So it, just as an example, if you know if there's a firm in your market that's able to invest several million dollars in let's say TV commercials, if you were to um, also do a TV commercial, if they've got 90 plus percent of the airtime and you just happen to run yours for, you know, like 1% or 2%, it's really not going to make a dent and it won't be very competitive, especially if you're running the exact same type of content that they are, where it's, you know, in a very simple, similar format talking about, you know, we'll fight for you and we'll provide aggressive representation and here's the settlements that we've um, been able to get for our clients. To consumers, they're not really able to, to, um, to tell uh, many law firms apart when they're marketing in very similar ways or when the messaging is, is the same from one to the next. So that the, the solo is able to compete by really standing out. And we found the best way to do so is through, you know, connecting in an emotional way, through storytelling, and also to really articulate, you know, why you do what you do. So um, it, it, gentlemen that I know you had um, on the show with Ben Glass, um, if you, if you yeah. watch his video, uh, one of the, you know, the key focus of his video is the fact that of all the children that he's adopted and his family, right, they really don't talk much about the law firm. Um, it's really uh, his video that's, that's on the homepage of his law firm's website is really the story of Ben and why he decided to become an attorney and what the values of their firm are and like what differentiates them. And that connects much more with their audience than simply saying, here are the service, like the legal services that we provide and here's how great we are. Yeah, and, and Ben being just a fantastic human being, I know it makes me listen to him more. Uh, so how how do you go about discovering that story for any particular lawyer? Yeah, so that's that's one of those things, and, and we spend a lot of time on the front end with discovery, and, 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 and ultimately, listeners can even do this themselves. I mean, the simple question really is just, you know, why did you decide to become an attorney as opposed to really for any other profession, for example, what, you know, a chiropractor or, or veterinarian, like what was, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, what is that, that why? And, you know, everybody's got a story that's unique to them. Um, you know, Ben's story would be very unique from another firm's story. Um, and it's really important to communicate that because that's what really creates that level of, of uh, authenticity. And that's what humanizes the firm. We're, we're finding today that consumers uh, once they know kind of what your background is, where you come from, why you exist, um, that's what really forms those types of connections because we're finding that in general, and that there's been a lot of studies about this. I, I was reading, I think it was a recent study that they did at Berkeley um, when they were comparing levels of, of trust and competence. And uh, attorneys scored very high on the competence scale, but very low on the trust scale. Um, yeah. And it, it's, I think it's 
largely due to um, the state of legal advertising and the way in which uh, many law firms market, which really is not just saturating the markets, but also doing so in ways where it seems like it's very much focused on on the money as opposed to actually really caring for for individuals. Um, and the way to really stand out in the sea of, of marketing that's done that way is to approach it in a completely different angle and really start uh, focusing on like the values, your values, your story, and even showcasing some of the things that you're doing in your community, especially for millennials. Uh, millennials love to see um, businesses that exist for reasons beyond simply making money, that, that, that they actually contribute to their community, that they pay things forward. Um, you know, we work with several firms, and I give an example of this in, in, the, in the closing of the book, that they are able to actually enrich their communities and they give back so much that they don't just take, right? So that they're, um, they're able to make so many contributions. They, um, they sponsor like local charities. They're donating turkeys. They're, uh, they're doing scholarships. Uh, they're all sorts of different things and not just financially, but they're donating their time as well that they're really, and when you're doing that, ultimately, no matter what huge advertiser comes in and how many billboards they buy, um, there's a level of loyalty that we find um, that exists from the community to those people, that it becomes less about who's the biggest advertiser and really about, you know, who do we like and trust and that that's the person that they refer. Uh, and so you discover the story, the unique reason why this particular man or woman is a, is a great lawyer doing it for the right persons that clients would love to meet. How do you get anyone to hear that story given the clutter out there? I mean, you do, you know, the pay-per-click prices are crazy. Uh, you know, it takes a long time to get up through organic searches. And who knows how people, what words people actually use to search for. I mean, how do you how do you do that, given that there's other people spending millions of dollars to make sure that they're going to appear well in the in the page rankings? Yeah, yeah, because you're right. I mean, pay-per-click now, I, I think that over 90% of the most expensive Google pay-per-click terms are legal terms. Uh, even, even that is extremely, extremely expensive. The best way, once let's say you've got a great message and you've got great content, you know, video or otherwise, um, one of the best ways to, to get it out there, especially what we're finding is the most cost-effective and the most targeted, is really through social. Um, we're seeing that whether it's uh, YouTube or Facebook, but it's, it's a different strategy too because you know, on those platforms, largely, especially something like Facebook, they may not be searching for an attorney. Um, but you are able to to target people um, and target very specific interest-based audiences. So let's say, and I just give this as an example, if you're going after motorcycle accident cases, um, you can target people in your community that own motorcycles, that are part of motorcycle clubs, right? So, and uh, and rather than putting out content that just says like hire me now and, and you know schedule an appointment or schedule a consultation, um, you can put out a book or you can put out a guide and, and provide education on like things that motorcycle riders would appreciate, right? That may have nothing to do um, with personal injury, right? And that's a way that you can not only um, continue to engage them but remain top of mind. But from a from a cost standpoint, we're finding now when at least if you're focusing on video on social platforms you're able to drive views sometimes less, you know, less than like a penny, like one to three cents per view um, to a very specific targeted audience. I mean, the, the firms that are doing this are literally, and um, this is, I'm not saying this is like the best kept secret because I, I think at this point we're seeing more and more firms that are now running Facebook ads and are leveraging platforms like YouTube and LinkedIn. Um, but at this point, like you can have a firm, and I'll just give an example. If you're running like YouTube and Facebook ads, if you were to put the investment of like what a firm would spend on one billboard monthly into those platforms, 
the reach and the level of targeting that you would receive would be the equivalent of like 100 billboards um, in wow. a very specific market that you can track, that you can directly attribute. I mean, it is it is incredible. And it won't be this way forever just because, you know, even Google pay-per-click um, 10 years ago, um, that was a, it was at a much different price point. But I really do believe that we're in the golden age today and we're seeing in, in very various markets. I mean, we work with firms all over the country, but we're seeing these solo attorneys that are, have a Goliath player in their market and they, they don't compete on the traditional front because they can't match them spend for spend, but they'll, um, when they're on digital, they are everywhere and they're able to do so for a fraction of the cost. And this is the way that they're able to be strategic. But even then, right? So I guess to take it another step further, uh, let's say you do get the content out there and there's no shortage of content online. I mean, I don't think anyone said that I wish there was more blogs. And uh, right. you know, <laughs> if you're scrolling through your Facebook news feed, it's, we can't even consume all this content. Uh, it's really important to to stand out. It's really different. And I have noticed, yourself. you know, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of lawyers on Facebook. So I see a lot of lawyer Facebook advertising and Facebook videos. And there is a real difference in stuff that I actually look at, which is something interesting about the person. In something that just looks like just every other legal ad you've seen, which I typically only even the reason I even look at them is because I'm I'm in the business and I'm always interested to see what other people do, but I'm not moved by them, if that makes any sense. Oh yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's what the strategy is essentially, and especially if you're talking about like social media, it here's what you have to consider. If we if we were talking about anything else, um, let's say we're talking about dentists, right? It, do you have a good reason? to follow your dentist and follow their Facebook page on social media and keep up with them, right? I mean, generally, no. Um, so what would be the reason that any consumer would actually be interested in following a law firm or, or an attorney and consistently seeing their content and their posts? Um, so, you know, we're in a world of attention economics where attorneys aren't just competing with other attorneys online. I mean, they're competing at bakeries and flower shops and Best Buy and Apple uh, and so on. And cat I mean, videos. only attorneys. <laughs> Yeah, it, cat videos. I mean, that's that's they'll they'll crush you, right? With the with the cat videos, it's so true. Um, so yeah, I think the belief is that you really have to play the long game, and what that means is that you know to to most people on 364 days of the year, a personal injury attorney is not very relevant to them. But on the one day that something does happen, it becomes extremely relevant. But how do they know who to call, right? Was it the last billboard that they saw or is it the person that they see and they're like, you know what? I always see these guys on Facebook and they're always doing so many things for the community and like this is their story and it's, I'm consistently seeing the stuff wherever I go and I've seen it on YouTube and that just stays top of mind. Or they reach out to one of their friends and they say, who is, who is that firm that always like, does, does those things around Thanksgiving that we always see on Facebook? And that's how it happens, right? It's very much a multi-channel, long-tail approach um, because most firms – are marketing in a way, and you see this with Google pay-per-click, to the 3% of people that are ready to hire an attorney that specific day, um, and they're hitting them, like all, you know, the other 97 with the exact same messaging for, for, for whom it's not very relevant. Whereas, you know, our belief is that you've really got to make somebody a fan before you can make them a client. So you, you've really got to focus on consistently producing content um, that, you know, is educational, that is of value, that is, you know, generally more um, emotionally driven um, and really builds trust so that you know, you're nurturing over time. And that, that's where we're finding most firms are seeing success online. We'll return to part two of this podcast in just a moment. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. 
Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com. We now return to the rest of this episode of Trial Lawyer Nation. What kind of changes have you seen kind of in the legal marketing landscape just since you started? I mean, when I started, uh, there was dial-up internet. Um, Very few, if any, firms had websites, and the yellow pages were the way to go. Uh, So I'm really dating myself there. Um, So what are the changes you've seen kind of in the market since you started? Well, I mean, the biggest shift has been, um, even even when we'd started, having – Having a website was was a big differentiator. Then it was having a blog, right? So that was uh, if you had a blog, um, you were already standing out, and you were able to just get to the top of the search engine. But then everybody had a website and a blog. Um, and then it was, I think, about uh, you know, just having a uh, being listed on various directories and even having social pages. So having a, a law firm like Facebook page and um, a LinkedIn page and a, and a Twitter account. But now we're finding that pretty much the majority of firms. Do have those things. They've got websites and blogs, and they're on social media, and it, they even have videos in many cases, right? So uh, what we're finding now is just that it's not enough to have the content because it's the the trap that many are falling into is commoditization. So consumers have more and more and more legal options. They're not able to tell one option apart from the other, so they can't tell the good apart from the bad. Um, they really don't have that level of discerning criteria. You have reviews online, of course. But uh, then there's firms you can search, you know, uh, in Google Local that they've got amazing five-star reviews, and there's a hundred other firms in their market that do as well. That it, again, it becomes more and more important to to stand out. And by doing so, it's not just having a great website or a great video or even just being on these platforms. It's what is your message and what is your why. And rather than trying to capture the attention of every single person, right, and being for everyone, essentially becoming McDonald's. It's you know knowing who you're for who is your audience specifically um, and really becoming the, the obvious choice for them. And in, in doing so is, you know, are you the go-to trucking attorney? Are you the go-to attorney that specializes in representing um, breweries, business law, right? Um, I think this is the age of where the, the most successful firms are very niche focused and rather than kind of a, a jack of all trades or even multi-practice. And I'm not saying that doesn't work, but if I look at our, our clients all across the country, the most successful ones have a clear focus. They know exactly who they're for and who they're not for. Um, they don't try you know, to be for everyone. But because of that, they're able to really, really engage the people that um, they exist to, to represent and help and support. Um, and that's all that matters. I mean, it's even when I wrote the book, I, I wrote it in a way that was, you know, this was me and kept all the profanity in there. And even though my editor was like, you know, we should take this out because I'm sure someone might be offended. And I said, well, we're not for them. That's okay, you know. Um, and I think that for, you know, you don't have to be for everyone. There, fortunately, uh, especially as you niche down, um, there is if you're of the abundance mentality, right? There is enough business if you are the best at something. Yeah. So how do you figure out what is your niche? What what should you specialize in? What store? You know, how do you how does a lawyer figure that out? I mean, everyone yeah, will say, well, my niche is going to be on cases that are going to bring in million-dollar fees, but that's probably not a very good way to advertise. <laughs> well, exactly, right? So, I mean, you can you can really take an audit and look at, you know, look down your client list of all the different types of clients and cases that you've represented and really 
uh, you know, outline almost like an avatar of who is your ideal client. And we actually did this with our business. It's, um, you know, ironically enough, why we work with um, uh, the types of clients that we do, but really building a business around your ideal client. Uh, but you have to define that. So like basically, um, whether it's practice area specific, um, and sometimes ideal client also is, is focused on specific types of cases that you like to represent, no matter how niche that they, that they are. Um, it's really being clear on that. Um, I think if you can outline that and then simply create a marketing plan that can help to increase the volume of those types of, of clients and cases, whether it's down to like um, targeting certain personas or whether it's individual like practice areas, um, whatever that might be, I think it's, it starts with just being clear on who that is. So for, I'll give you an example. Like with us, um, you know, our criteria, it's, it's really based on like uh, several mindset habits, but um, we only work with law firm owners that are ambitious and engaged in their business. Like those guys that are, are in their day to day that like that are truly engaged, that are, you know, that know their metrics and are, are accountable people that, you know, aren't just on the beach and want to write a check and go away that really want to, um, to be there and really want to grow. Um, and we, we work with people that, are, that they just want to be super competitive and dominate their, um, like dominate their market. Like that's a very important mindset habit for us because, um, that's our team and that's who we love to work with. And, you know, we'll come across some firms for whom they say, look, I'm really looking to kind of slow down or, um, I, you know, I'm always on vacation and there's nothing wrong with this, right? There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But I think if you can clearly define who is your ideal client, um, then you can really, uh, decide who you're for and who you're not for. And for us, um, for our ideal clients, it's like a perfect harmony. Uh, we've, we have such strong relationships with them. And this all came out of uh, the fact that like several years ago, we found that if someone does not have goals and they can't articulate what their goals are, we, we're probably not the company for them because we can't be successful, right? So there's without a clarity as to like what would determine success. And then you say, you know, you need to tell a story about, you know, who you are in the video and why you do what you want to do. You know, we all have a hundred stories in our lives. How do we develop what the story is we want to tell? Yeah. So everybody's everybody's got a different story, and, and you hear this all the time in the sense that I I know that not everybody you know grew up and they you know like they were you know out on the street and supporting one of their siblings, or they uh, you know had a really tough upbringing. Some people may have had a, an amazing upbringing, right? I've had the question sometimes of saying, okay, Mike, well. I grew up in a, you know, in a, with a great family in a, in a wonderful environment. We never had to ask for anything. And I, you know, I, my parents paid for college. And, and then when I ended up starting my law firm, they, they paid for the, you know, to, they gave me the investment and uh, <laughs> money to start the firm. So what's my story, right? Uh, Hopefully that's and, my children's story, but yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know, not, not everyone has that, that, you know, that story of struggle and adversity, but it's really asking yourself, like, really what, what is your why? And, um, I'll tell you, like, sometimes you can go a level deeper and say, well, uh, like, let's talk about you, even your parents and, and, and their story and like the, the types of, of values that they set. Perhaps that was a, a significant influencing factor. Um, but really, it's it's figuring out, you know, why you are the way you are um, and whether it was a, an, an experience that you had when you were younger that kind of shaped your desire to become an attorney or into the legal profession, um, whether it's wanting to stand up for certain injustices, it's essentially what drives you, right? Because that, that's what gets someone out of bed in the morning. And if, if you're still not clear on this, um, one of the things that you can do if we're talking about value proposition is simply ask your clients, right? So asking the clients of why did you choose to um, hire our firm 
as opposed to any other law firm. And the, the, sometimes the answer that they'll give you can also not just help to shape your value proposition, but also your messaging. Because I know there's many firms that go right to um, creating whatever content it is they're creating, and they're saying, you know, we're super aggressive in the courtroom, and that's you know, our model and our theme is, is that. But then when we speak with their clients, we find that their clients hired them not because they had huge settlements and they were super aggressive in the courtroom, but because of the personalized level of attention that they provided, the fact that they were always able to reach them, the fact that they came and checked in on them and they were in the hospital, um, all those things. And, and then as we work backwards from that, we're able to really figure out that the values of the firm were all very consistent, that everybody had all, uh, at, at this specific firm um, had experienced a personal injury of their own, right? And that they really understood and knew what their clients were experiencing. And that's that was unique to that specific firm, and that's ultimately what we shape the content around. That's interesting because when we recently uh, – I've done a little bit of that, but we recently got some lawyers to film testimonial videos to give to other lawyers, which actually you know, really touched me because you know, finding lawyers that were willing to say this other lawyer is someone I'd refer a case to even though you know we all have huge egos as lawyers. Uh, and – one of the things I noticed, and I think you know, I expected people to talk about the money, to be honest. But the you know the accessibility, the communication, was you know is big of a thing to them because the you know every, any there's a like I do mostly trucking. There are probably at least fifty to hundred trucking lawyers in the country, probably at least twenty to forty in Texas that could do a really good job. Uh, and so that's just not enough to differentiate. It's you having to do that good job and take care of the client and take care of the referring lawyer uh, in my business and, and make sure that we answer their questions and they don't feel like they're being left out of the loop or when the client calls them, you know, they can't get a hold of somebody, you know, uh, that, you know it, it's just finding out what your people really want and what's important to them. And then that way we, we know that we, that's what we need to deliver. And also that's how we can try to sell to new people. That is such, such an important point. So, Value, um, I, I've always believed that value is what your client consider value or even referral sources consider value. And it's really being in tune with that uh, because oftentimes what we see is that one of the reasons that someone will hire you is not just because of the service you provide or because of how, how you know, your experience uh, or even how good you are, but it's simply for the experience of working with you and the experience that you provide. Those are the things that they remember because there's there's an emotional component to this and there's a the logical component to this. Um, but the thing that they will remember that will differentiate them because especially we see this personal injury of the, you know, the fact that um, being very contingency based, it's really no fee for them to, um, to hire an attorney and, and they've no shortage of options. Uh, I mean, we're finding in certain markets there's over a thousand or 2000 options. Um, and it doesn't matter. Like, I mean, I'll tell you if, if you're, let's say you're on the, you're not on the first page of Google uh, in a major market. I mean, what do you do? Right. So, the, the main differentiating factor can really be what is the experience of working with you. Um, they want to work with you because in, in the content that they've seen from you, it's always been very educational. It's always been very value driven. Um, they see your team and they see your firm's culture and they're like, you know what? I can relate to those people uh, and I can relate to this person. They, they, they'll, they'll learn about your story and say, well, you know, I, we share this, you know, the same values. Um, they'll read a book that you've um, that you've created. I mean, all those different things. I think they all come together, and it's the same thing even with referral sources, right? Attorneys can refer to multiple other attorneys, um, but I think it always comes back to um, you know not just the relationships that are there, but the experience of working with one another. Well, I think the experience is so important because if you think about you know the things that we lawyers pride ourselves on, which is courtroom ability, sometimes writing or legal reasoning, the amount obtained. Uh, 
clients have no point of reference in the consumer area. They have no what I call a compared to what. Okay, you get somebody a million dollars on a case. They don't know whether or not a million dollars was an exceptional recovery or that it should have been a five million dollar. They have no idea. They have no idea whether that deposition you took was a good or bad deposition because they've they've not seen other depositions. They don't know what is good and what is bad. They just don't have the frame of reference for it. But they know how people treat them, um, and they know what kind of experience they have when they deal with you. And I think that is really important if you're looking at what drives decisions and and also what drives client satisfaction. Because you know if you have a hundred videos out you know on Facebook and everyone has ten comments saying I hired this lawyer and he sucked. <laughs> You know, that's, that oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and, and I'd say it's important to live up to, um, to your marketing. So uh, you know, we see firms over and over again that they say they're world-class and they're the best. Right. And then, and then you call them. Right. And then maybe, maybe nobody answers the phone or, uh, maybe no one will call them back or if they submit a, a contact form, maybe they never hear again. Uh, it's really important to continuously audit what that client's experience is, right? At every single touch point to making, you know, to make sure that you really are living up to, to your marketing because you can do an amazing, amazing job. We, we see this time and time again, you can do an amazing job of getting someone to reach out. But w- even when they do, if they have a poor experience at that first touch point, you know, you can lose out on a, on a tremendous opportunity and potentially a very strong case. We had a firm um, that was auditing their intake, and they found that the, the the person who had answered the phone had done such a poor job that they had lost out on a potentially seven-figure case. Wow. And the market the thing was is great. Yeah. You know, someone who has a perfect experience with your firm, if you're lucky, may tell one or other two people that you did a good job for them. But someone who has a bad experience with the firm will tell everybody they know every chance they can get how, how horrible it was. Um, and so it is really important to deliver on that, I found, especially now in the days of social media where, like I said, people can leave comments. Uh, you know, people can post a screenshot or post your video, say, don't hire this person. You know, I hired him and it was horrible, a horrible experience or something like that. And or never called me back or, you know, it's easy to, for us to put our message out there if we don't deliver on our promises. Uh, it's so easy for the clients to put bad stuff out there. Oh yeah, and there's it's it's very easy nowadays. I mean, again, anybody can leave a review, anyone can say anything, and it's really important to make sure that uh, you're paying attention to this stuff. Uh, we, we see a lot of firms that say, well, you know, I don't have really time for social media, and uh, you know, what's the ROI in this stuff anyway? And but the reality is, consider where is the attention of your audience, and we're seeing this across really any age. I mean, whether it's you know. Uh, you know, someone in their 20s and 30s or in their 70s and 80s, and what is the one device that they carry on, on them at all times? And it's their mobile phone. It's a smartphone. Um, it's, that's on them at all times. You know, they're consistently, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that, that's how they're consuming their news, and that's how they're consuming all sorts of other content, that if you're not top of mind there, you're just missing out on a tremendous opportunity to engage with them because you know, you're finding that most people – because they're getting hit with so much content, attention spans are shorter. And uh, again, it's, it's that fraction of a second moment of who has simply remained top of mind for them and who do they remember that becomes the person they reach out to. Do you have any, just out of curiosity, any predictions for the future? I mean, right now, what you, from, I've talked to some friends that work with you, and evidently you guys are killing it uh, with the video and the social media and whatever else you're doing. Uh, do you have any predictions as to what the next wave is going to be? 
Yeah, so it's a good question. I'll tell you what we're seeing. Um, so in terms of what the next wave will be, the trend is because there's more and more content out there. I think it's becoming more and more important to have a level of personalization of that content and more segmentation uh, of it. So, so for example, the way in which you'd market to, you know, uh, even within an individual practice area, the different age groups um, to, uh, you know, for example, for motorcycle accidents, it's clearly very different than other types of personal injury. The, the more personalized that content is, I also think the firms that are willing to invest in um, in the long game are going to be the most successful. I think that it's becoming more and more difficult and increasingly difficult, as we talked about even with Google Pay-Per-Click, um, to just launch something on day one and see results on day one. Uh, I think it's the firms that are willing to make that long-term investment in, in value and giving back to their communities. I mean, it's a good thing. Because you're really separating the you know the cream of the crop um, from those that are you know really really investing um, not just in their marketing but in their firm and their client experience like you've got to be good at all these different things now uh, because those are becoming increasingly more important differentiating factors. It's really not as simple as just now launching a Facebook ad or a Google ad or a, you know a great website. Now you've got to get all this stuff uh, right and do it well. But I think that's good for consumers and I think that's good for the market. Um, the other things that we're seeing is. You know, if, uh, you know, I, I think more and more about this, it's the increased importance on quality content and quality content being, you know, you can no longer just put out a blog post of saying like here that, you know, almost like those clickbait posts of like seven tips or seven <laughs> things you should know. Now this is, is it's got to be substantive, you know, it's stuff that's actually really of, of value that someone would share with someone that help, actually helps give them actionable insights, things that they can learn. Um, it's no longer about the just the individual content piece of let's just put out a video or write a blog or do this. Um, now it's got to be really good. And uh, that kind of stuff is, is what's standing out from the noise uh, because people are just getting numb to a, a whole lot of it, right? So you can just you know, say, we're going to put out a commercial and it's successful. Now we've got to consider the pain points of your audience. And, and then also like, okay, instead of them just reaching out immediately, maybe you've got to hit them with several pieces of content and continue to engage them. So in a way, it's going to require uh, a, a greater level of investment. And I don't mean just financially, I mean just actually really, really, really like focusing in on um, what are the things that they care about and also the importance of being able to effectively market to millennials. I think that, that because we're seeing that as, as such, um, such a large segment of the marketplace that being able to effectively engage them. Um, and, I, and I mentioned this a few times earlier, but for millennials, it's extremely, extremely important to highlight the reasons why you exist outside of making money. They want to see that. Um, you, you see this with uh, organizations like Orby Parker and Tom's Shoes, where for every pair of shoes that you buy, they'll, like, they'll donate a pair to somebody in need. Um, when you're showing the impact that you're making in your community, all those different things, I think, are ways to better engage them and build trust with them um, so if you're looking at the upcoming um, generations here, we're finding that community impact is, is uh, one of the most important things. I think the other thing to remember about that generation is they don't watch television commercials. That's right. I mean, they, they don't watch they, tele they, television commercials, <laughs> and they they don't really watch a whole lot of live TV, to be honest. Um, it, or even if they do, during commercials, what do you think they do? They pull out their phone and they will go on Facebook. Are they DVR'd it and, and they fast forward through the commercials? Exactly. So I know things are changing. You know, things that worked before aren't working as well. I had lunch with a really good lawyer who has been advertising for a long time, and he just says that you know they're just be they're getting less and less results from their traditional ads. Uh, 
what is your solution to that? Well, it's uh, it makes sense, right? So consumer attention is changing. Uh, even the way in which they're making decisions is changing. Uh, what it means, I think, is just that it's not to say traditional ads don't work. We we see several firms where they work extremely well. The billboards are working extremely well. But uh, again, it's really important to consider where is the attention of your audience? Like where is that being spent? And approaching it and marketing to them in a multi-channel way. So um, never focusing on any one individual um, platform. So for example, maybe not just um, you know social media or just a website or SEO or just billboards. Or, or TV or radio, you know, it's, it's working with all these things. Um, you know, one realizing, okay, maybe my audience, maybe they're, uh, you know, maybe they're not online. Maybe they don't spend a whole lot of time online and you can send them a direct mail. Um, and you know, let's say it's somebody that's uh, is in a nursing home, for example, right? You can send them a, a video brochure or you can, you know, there's, there's other ways in which you can engage with them. Um, but it's, the other aspect of it is, is maybe they're in all those different mediums. Um, it's can you target them in, in every avenue, right? So it's having something for them online and offline. And that way, I think it, it's more important to understand, like, that the messaging and the value proposition, all that stuff aligns with the pain points of your audience. And then even having the audience clearly defined, that is more important than the individual platform consideration. So for example, things will change. And I made this point throughout the book that um, things are moving so quickly online that, you know, today it's one platform, let's say, it's, you know, it's Facebook and, you know, and Google, but, you know, three years, five years from now, that could all change. Um, platforms will change. Um, but the, um, the thing that's always going to be consistent is understanding, um, like, you know, what your values are, why you do what you do, um, what your audience cares about, um, what their pain points are. Like, when, when you understand those things and you can have a clear and succinct message that, that engages them, you know, whether the platforms change or not, that doesn't matter so much. Um, you're going to be able to adapt. And nowadays, the adaptability is really, really important um, to not focus on any one particular source because, again, things Things can change overnight. Um, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe we don't have websites five years from today. Maybe it's all social media, right? Or, or, or what have you, right? If you focus solely on any one uh, lead source, uh, you'd be in trouble. But if you're if you're focusing across the board, um, you're you're going to be able to be adaptable to whatever change may come. And then finally, um, the big thing is also like really considering what are the types of things that you're doing um, in your community, in your market. How are you involved? Um, how are you actually, you know, getting out there and helping people and contributing um, so that that reputation spreads, that there's, you know, a consistent amount of referral and word of mouth. Um, it's not just sitting behind the, uh, you know, the keyboard and saying we're going to launch a bunch of ads, right? Because then if somebody else is, let's say, more creative, more strategic, they launch a ton of ads. Um, is it just going to be, become a competition of spend, or is it about the real relationship that you fostered, um, that you really engaged people, that you built trust, that you put out value out there? And I think that's the way to really become um, dominant in your market. Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I, I know I'm getting a lot out of this conversation, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this as well. Uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you or to learn more about you, how can they do it? Yeah, absolutely. So you can always check out um, our website. It's crispvideo.com, C-R-I-S-P video.com. Um, if you're interested in the book, uh, this this is a book that I had spent a year of my life uh, writing this past year. It was, a, it was a labor of love, and it was basically the book that I wish I had when I started the business. I've basically outlined 
our entire process. I had interviewed over a hundred of our attorneys. Um, there was, in many cases, some of the fastest growing firms in the country. Talked to them about like their marketing. We outlined all the case studies and basically what they did and how they grew. Um, but if you're interested in that, um, the book is on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. Um, the website for the book is GameChangingAttorney.com. And I promise you, at no point in this book do I actually say um, you should hire Crisp Video. We actually outline how you can do all this stuff yourself. So, um, you know, I hope that it can provide valuable insights. And I learned a whole lot even going through this process. I, I'll tell you, writing a book can really <laughs> um, help you become a, a, a great, have a greater understanding of everything it is uh, that you're writing about. Well, Michael, thank you so much for for coming on. I know you guys also attend some of the bigger legal conferences. And I, I look forward to seeing you in the near future. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're a regular listener, be sure to visit our website, www.triallawyernation.com, to opt into our mailing list and stay updated on our new episodes. And if you have a Facebook account, Send us a request to join our private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our podcast before the air, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind the scenes moments. If you're not on Facebook, you can always contact us via email at podcast at triallawyernation.com. I love to hear from all of you, so please continue to send us emails. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.